Now, if you do have your Bible with you this morning, please do turn back to Mark chapter 11 and verses 1 to 11 as we look at this passage this morning. It's amazing to think that it's now over a year since we were first locked down. And the first cases of coronavirus were reported in our country, and sadly, the first deaths as well. And the anniversary of the start of the lockdown has allowed us to reflect on all that's happened in the past year and to think about how that's affected us all. And of course, it's affected us as the church as well at this time. One of the first services that we did from the man's garden was Palm Sunday last year, which fell on the 5th of April. And I think that when we did this service then, that we wouldn't have expected to be in the position that we are now. And although th hopefully things are improving slowly, normal is certainly going to be different for quite a while yet, at least. And over this past wee while, we've been looking at Matthew's Gospel on a Sunday morning. But this week for Palm Sunday and for Holy Week as we move to Good Friday and then to Easter Sunday, it's Mark's Gospel and Mark's version of events that we are going to be looking at in our reflections. So again, I do encourage you, please do join us online for these times of reflection uh, throughout Holy Week. Now this morning, as is traditional on Palm Sunday, we look at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. And in many ways, this passage, uh, Mark chapter 11, begins the last section in Mark's gospel. And it's quite something, if you think about it, to think that these last chapters, Mark 11 through to Mark chapter 16, it cover only the last week of Jesus' life, which shows uh, that this part of the gospel and this week in Jesus' life must be really significant. Now, I'm sure that most of us know the story of what happens here in Mark 11, with Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, the triumphal entry. But what I want you to notice, particularly this morning, is the change that this brings in terms of what's gone on before in Jesus' ministry. You see, remember Jesus begins his ministry. He uh, is in the synagogue uh, in Galilee, and he uses those words from Isaiah, uh, saying that he is uh, the one who has been promised, uh, and he effectively begins his ministry. And from that point on, he teaches, he does miracles, he heals the sick, he delivers people from evil spirits. But remember how often when Jesus healed someone, that Jesus would tell the person who's been healed not to tell anyone other than the, the priest to, to declare themselves clean, but not to spread the word about what Jesus has been uh, doing. And so what you actually see in the Gospels is Jesus often going out of his way to avoid unnecessary publicity. And often after a time of uh, ministry, uh, after you know, people had been uh, healed and there was 
you know, significant teaching and the people were amazed at his teaching. What did Jesus do? He didn't continue that ministry in the same place. Often he went off to a solitary place with his disciples to pray. And so what I want you to see is that in his ministry, Jesus seems determined not to stir up the crowd and not to heighten expectation. And from what we see with the 12 disciples, there seems to be good reason for that. Because, of course, there's a lot of misunderstanding as to who Jesus is and what kind of kingdom Jesus is bringing in. Indeed, even in the previous chapter, in Mark chapter 10, we see two of the disciples, two of the the inner circle, if you want to put it that way, James and John, we see them approaching Jesus and wanting to sit at Jesus right and left in the kingdom. And when the, the other disciples realize that James and John have effectively stolen a march on them and tried to get places of honor, the other 10 disciples become indignant. And Jesus to try and defuse this situation, has to gather them all together, all twelve. And Jesus says to them that if they want to become great in the kingdom, they must become servants. They're not to lord it over one another. They're to become servants and slaves. So what I want you to notice is that even the disciples don't truly understand the nature of the kingdom. But in chapter 11, the chapter we're going to look at this morning, Jesus does something different to what has gone before. In chapter 10, verse 32, we see Jesus leading the way to Jerusalem. And it's the first time in in Mark's gospel that we see Jesus going to Jerusalem, although in the other gospels he goes at other times. But here in Mark, he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And it says in chapter 10 that the disciples were astonished and those who followed Jesus were afraid. They know something significant is taking place by Jesus going to Jerusalem. They know that something new is happening. And Jesus takes the twelve aside and he tells them what's going to happen. He doesn't speak in parables like he has uh, before. He tells them, quite plainly what's going to happen. That he's going to suffer, that he's going to die, and on the third day, he's going to be raised again. He's quite plain about that. The disciples, however, don't seem to grasp it. But then we come to chapter 11. And in chapter 11, we see Jesus, the disciples, and the crowd approaching Jerusalem from Jericho. And Jesus and the disciples come to two villages which are southeast of Jerusalem, Bethphage and Bethany. Bethany, of course, is the place where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived, good friends, of course, of Jesus. And as they approach these two villages, Jesus sends two of his disciples to go and find a colt tied up which no one has ever ridden. Now, we don't know who the two disciples are who have been sent, but what we need to notice here is that there is more detail here in Mark's gospel than in the other gospels as to how the colt was um, tied up, uh, tied to a 
a door handle outside, which suggests an eyewitness account. And so with Mark's gospel, the source being Peter, it may be that Peter was one of the disciples that was sent. Now, we don't know if the cult being outside that house tied up was prearranged by Jesus or whether this was a supernatural event. But when it's brought to Jesus and the disciples lay their coats over the colt for Jesus to ride, we know that Jesus is publicly making a statement as he rides into Jerusalem. And we know this is the case because Scripture prophesies it. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it prophesies about the king riding on a donkey the colt of a donkey. And the crowd understand that this is a symbolic action that Jesus is making. And so as Jesus rides on this colt, what do the people do? They spread their cloaks on the ground, just like a a red carpet would um, welcome royalty. They go into the fields and cut off branches, and the branches are uh, laid on the road uh, before uh, Jesus, and they Uh, We know from the other Gospels that they wave branches in the air. In John's Gospel, uh, we know that some of these branches are palm branches, hence it being Palm Sunday. And some people went ahead of Jesus, and some people were behind Jesus, this huge thronging crowd. And as they are with Jesus, they shout, Hosanna, which means save, but is also an exclamation of praise. And they also shouted, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Now these words are from Psalm 118, a psalm of ascent into Jerusalem as the people come into Jerusalem for the Passover feast. So what I want you to notice is that Jesus makes a deliberate action by riding into Jerusalem on this colt. And the people, they get it. They understand what Jesus riding on the colt means. You see, back in King David's day, the the golden era to some extent of, of Israel, David's son Solomon rode on the king's mule to show that he was the next king. You see, riding on a horse would suggest warfare, but this is a king coming in peace, declaring he is the king. And the people shout out, recognizing Jesus as the king, probably recognizing that Jesus is the Messiah. And so from a place where Jesus is saying to people not to tell anyone, this is now a public declaration. You see, Jesus has recognized that now is the time, that the time has come for him to do what he's been called to do. And he's very aware of what's going to happen to him as he goes into Jerusalem, as we saw him tell the disciples in chapter 10. He has come to suffer. He's come to die. He's come to rise again. He's come to save. But of course, even though 
the crowds thought that Jesus was a king. They didn't really grasp what kind of king he truly was. They probably thought that Jesus was going to rescue the Jews from the tyranny of the Romans. We know that what Jesus had come to do was far greater than that, that it was to save us from our sin and to pay the price for it, to take the punishment that we deserve upon himself at the cross at Calvary. Now, it's significant, therefore, isn't it, that when Jesus goes into Jerusalem, he doesn't wander around aimlessly. You see, sometimes, I don't know about you, I've not really thought about why did Jesus go into Jerusalem? Where did he go? What did he, what did he do when he was riding on this colt? It wasn't as if he, he rode into Jerusalem on the colt and then said to the crowds, look, thanks everyone, you know, thanks for, for joining with us today, and, and, and that's it. He has a purpose. Where does he go? He goes to the temple. And when he goes to the temple, what does he do? He surveys the temple courts. But since it's late, he then goes back with the 12 disciples to Bethany. Now, we know from the very next passage in Mark 11, that the next day, Jesus went back to the temple and he cleared the temple courts because he wasn't happy as to what he saw. He saw that it wasn't fit for purpose, that it was a den of robbers rather than a house of prayer. Now, the temple, of course, was the center of Jewish worship. But soon it would be destroyed in AD 70. And rather, what we need to see is Jesus is the new temple, the true temple, the one through whom we can come to God. You see, before people came to the temple, they they made their sacrifices there. But because Jesus has made a sacrifice once and for all at the cross, he becomes the true temple for us. And so there is a change from the old temple, which was a shadow of things to come, to the new temple, which is Jesus far better in every way. So today, as you look at this passage on Palm Sunday, and you see Jesus riding on that donkey, what's your reaction? Do you shout, Hosanna? Or do you turn away and and, and sneer like the, the Pharisees because Jesus isn't what they wanted? And they were more concerned with their own power. You see, Jesus might not be the king that they expected. But he was the king that they needed. And the same is true for us. Jesus is the king that we need. And so I want you to see this morning, behold your king. Humble and riding on a donkey. Behold your king. The one who is innocent and yet flogged and suffering and condemned to die. Behold your king, crucified. Can you imagine a king dying on the cross, let alone the very Son of God? Behold your king, 
dead and buried. This is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Son of God, the King we need. Behold your King, risen from the dead, conquering death, bringing life and joy and hope everlasting. Is this not what we need to know at this time? If you recognize Jesus as your King today, lay your coat on the ground before him. Cut the branches off the trees in the fields. Wave the palm branches in the air and shout Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Recognize Jesus for who he is. Put your faith and trust in him. Bow before him and behold your king. This has been a difficult time over this last year. People have felt hopeless. People have felt in despair. Over Lent, we had a banner outside the church that said, Try Praying. And we left booklets outside the church. And we did that because we felt that during this time, people were searching, they were looking for something. We had a hundred booklets. All of those booklets have gone. They've been taken. I hope as people have taken those booklets that they try praying, they try seeking after God. And as they seek after God, that God will find them. People are looking for hope at this time. In this passage today, we find hope because we see a king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. We see him on a journey and we'll follow him in that journey this week, Holy Week. We'll follow him to the cross at Calvary on Good Friday. And then next Sunday, we will celebrate once more this king risen, at the Father's right hand, giving us hope, peace, and joy. May you know the hope and peace that Jesus brings today, and may you bow the knee before him and shout, Hosanna. Shall we just join together in prayer? Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, this is such a familiar passage to us today. And sometimes it's so familiar to us that we forget how important it is, what it's pointing towards. We thank you that this passage marks a change in the Gospels, a change in Jesus' ministry. Because before he was telling people to be quiet, and now he's proclaiming publicly, he is the King. He is the one coming into Jerusalem as the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords the one who is willing to lay down his life at the cross for us, that we might know forgiveness and hope and peace. Heavenly Father, in our mind's eye, we can imagine Jesus riding on that donkey. We can imagine the crowd thronging around him, shouting, Hosanna. We can see the excitement in the crowd. And Father, we ask for forgiveness for those times when we can be lukewarm in our faith when we don't truly rejoice at what Jesus has done. Heavenly Father, 
May we bow before Jesus, lay our coat on the ground before him, wave palm branches in the air, and shout Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. May we see Jesus for who he is, and may we worship him as King of kings, Lord of lords. So, Heavenly Father, speak to us through your word today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.